What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Don't Give Up the Shit Podcast. This is going to be a Memorial Day episode. Uh, I'm going to spend time talking about uh, the losses of the USS Thresher and USS Scorpion. Um, for those that aren't familiar, it's the kind of the two major accidental, maybe, which I'll, I'll get into explaining, uh, losses of submarines following World War II where the entire crew was lost. Um, so America has lost 67 submarines, of which 53 were lost during World War II alone. Uh, and that includes 375 officers and 3,131 enlisted sailors. And this is something that uh, you'll hear the term eternal patrol. Uh, sometimes it's it, they, it's said as still on patrol when describing these submarines. Uh, and basically, I mean, that concept is just explaining that that submarine never returned. Uh, it was on patrol or deployment and uh, based on whatever the circumstances were, whether it was a loss in combat as, as many of those submarines were uh, during World War II or it was some kind of accidental loss of the submarine. It was a loss, a total loss of the ship and its crew. Um, I'm choosing to focus on these two in particular because they're the most recent uh, and it's they're, they're famous for um, being something that kind of turned us into uh, a safer force as, as a result of lessons learned from those. And I'll, I'll discuss some of that, but, um, in exploring this as a concept, it made me go to a weird place, um, where you kind of think about things that you don't normally think about. So, uh, every time we cast off lines, climb down the ladder and then dog the hatch behind us, uh, just for a second, you let yourself think about it. Um, and it's just for like a really brief second. You barely notice it in your conscious brain and then it's gone. And it's locked away in the deep recesses of your mind, not allowing yourself to consider uh, this as a real possibility. Uh, it can't happen to me. I'm invincible. It can't happen to us uh, until it does. The Thresher was the first uh, that I'm going to talk about. First in her class uh, of submarines and the second USS Thresher. Uh, she was commissioned in August 1961 and was a building block of what was becoming a new nuclear submarine force. Uh, at the time, she was the fastest and quietest submarine. She was the newest uh, and was purpose-built to hunt Soviets. This was the, the height of the Cold War. Uh, and the Thresher was conducting a post-overhaul dive uh, following a post-shakedown docking period that's required after initial sea trials for any new submarine. Uh, and the avail availability ran over schedule, which they expected because it was a new class of submarine. And so they're, you know, they're kind of learning about that, all the things that can go wrong and the things that they need to fix as they go there. And she was certified and undocked on April 8th, 1963. Uh, the very next day on April 9th, Thresher commanded by Lieutenant Commander John Wesley Harvey left from Kittery, Maine at 8 a.m. and met with the submarine rescue ship Skylark at 11 a.m. 
to begin her initial post-overhaul dive trials in an area some 220 miles east of Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Uh, that afternoon, Thresher conducted an initial trim dive test, surfaced, and then performed a second dive to half of test depth. Uh, test depth is a depth that we reference as basically what we think that it like the, the submarine platforms pressure hole has been tested uh, to be like to maintain its integrity at that depth with the sea pressure that is at that depth if that makes sense so we know up to that depth we're good <laughs> um, she remained submerged overnight and reestablished underwater communications with Skylark at 6.30 a.m. on 10 April to commence deep dive trials. Following standard practice, Thresher slowly dove deeper as she traveled in circles under Skylark to remain within communications distance, pausing every 100 feet uh, to check the integrity of all systems. As Thresher neared her test depth, Skylark received garbled communications over the underwater telephone, indicating minor difficulties have a positive up angle attempting to blow. And then a final, even more garbled message that included the number 900. When Skylark received no further communication, surface observers gradually realized Thresher had sunk. By mid-afternoon, 15 Navy ships were en route to search the area. At 6.30 p.m., the commander of submarine force Atlantic sent word to Portsmouth Naval Shipyard to begin notifying the crew's family members, starting with Commander Harvey's wife, Irene, that the thresher was missing. By the morning of 11 April, all hope of finding thresher was abandoned, and at 10.30 a.m., Chief of Naval Operations Admiral George W. Anderson, Jr., went before the press at the Pentagon to announce that the submarine was lost with all hands. And President Kennedy ordered all flags to be flown at half staff from 12 to 15 April in honor of the 129 lost submariners and shipyard personnel. Several theories persist on the cause of Thresher's loss. There's no way to be certain. Um, the most common is that a seawater system joint failed. Apparently at the time, silver brazing was more prevalent than just actual welding. Uh, and this could, this, any sea, major seawater system uh, joint failing would cause flooding on board the submarine. Uh, and large amounts of seawater would enter the ship and that that could have caused damage to other systems to a point that w could have could have and would have, if especially if it was in the engine room, caused a reactor scram, which is just when the reactor shuts down. And because that is what provides us propulsion, uh, that's a very bad thing when you're trying to get back to the surface. So at the time, standard procedure was to immediately cut off steam flow, which causes that loss of propulsion. Uh, this was combined with a failure of the ship's emergency blow system. So that's the system that we use to uh, immediately get to the surface. Basically, a ton of high-pressure air enters the ballast tanks, which are full of seawater, and that's kind of what keeps us under the water when we want to be. Uh, it would blow all that water out immediately, fill those with air, make us positively buoyant, and shoot to the surface really quickly. Uh, that system, due to moisture in it, caused freezing uh, in the system that blocked the air from flowing to the ballast tanks and rapidly uh, ejecting all that water and causing the positive buoyancy the ship would have needed to get to the surface. Uh, whatever the cause, the ship could not get to the surface due to what is believed to be a simultaneous loss of propulsion and failure of that emergency blow system. 
causing the ship to sink to a depth of over 2,300 feet where she is believed to have imploded, uh, then coming to rest on the ocean bottom at a depth of approximately 8,400 feet. Uh, an alternative theory was an electrical failure caused tripping off of the reactor's coolant pumps that then caused that reactor scram and loss of propulsion. Um, due to the ship's depth, it would, would not have been able to restart the reactor in time and the ship would have basically just slowly sunk because it didn't have propulsion. Uh, and then that failure of the emergency blow system couldn't get it to the surface in the absence of propulsion. And then that would lead to effectively the same thing. Um, the second one that I wanted to talk about was the Scorpion. Uh, so coming to the end of a three-month deployment, uh, the Scorpion was ordered to spy on a Soviet task force rumored to be operating near Africa. So following that operation, it was to return home on May 27th, 1968, and she obviously never made it home. The story of the Scorpion is like something out of a movie. Uh, we don't actually know what happened, very similar to the Thresher. Uh, we don't know what led to her loss. What we do know is at the time, she was diverted to spy on a Soviet task force operating near the coast of Africa that included at least one submarine. Uh, we also know that on the watch floor of Sublant, the supervisor on duty responsible for handling all the highly classified communications to and from the 104 submarines under its purview was John Walker. And if that name doesn't ring a bell, it should. So Chief Warrant Officer Walker was convicted of spying for the Soviet Union from 1968 to 1985. Uh, theories range from some kind of malfunction on board uh, causing the sinking to more provocative ideas that the Scorpion was sunk by Soviets. And then that theory is then the, the, the flames are fanned by the idea that a Soviet spy was on the watch floor uh, potentially passing covert communications to the Soviets that would lead to them knowing that submarine was spying on them and then could do something about it. So the, the provocative theories gain more attraction uh, from that theory and uh, the sound surveillance system uh, called SOSIS had picked up both an explosion, which goes, they go back and forth between it could have been a torpedo or it was just the sound of the submarine imploding once it reached a particular depth. Um, and a Soviet submarine leaving the area at a higher rate of speed was also picked up on that submarine or on that uh, sound surveillance system. A submarine leaving the area was, was uh, picked up. So it's kind of, was it leaving the area just because it like wanted to or it thought it should because it recognized that something bad had happened to an American submarine or was it that it had just sunk an American submarine? Um, during that evening, the ship had been attempting to communicate with Cobb Sublant but failed and was only able to reach a relay station in, and I'm going to butcher this name, it was like Nia Mockery, Greece. Uh, it's N-E-A and then M-A-K-R-I, Greece. Um, Commander Slattery, the commanding officer of the Scorpion, relayed one final message to that station that then eventually got relayed to Comsublant uh, on twenty-one, the, the night of 20 to 21 May 1968 that said he was closing on the Soviet submarine and research group running at a steady 15 knots at a depth of 350 feet to begin surveillance on the Soviets. Uh, the ship then missed its check report, which was a nightly report where it would send a covert message of four words, basically just saying that they're good. The Scorpion is good. Not, like nothing bad is happening. Um, 
and the the ship missed that report on the night of 22 May, causing alarm bells to start going off. And at this point, the Navy began to fear the loss of the submarine and its crew, uh, and the Admiral in charge, Vice Admiral Arnold Shade, uh, organized a search days before the public knew about it uh, because they, they be- are believed to have known what happened and at least enough to know that the submarine was lost under whatever circumstances. Um, in October of 1968, the USNS Mazar and the Trieste II, which is a deep diving submersible, uh, were able to locate and extensively photograph the wreckage, said to look as though it had been put through a shredding machine. Uh, a significant legacy of the Thresher loss uh, was the institution of the Subsafe program in late 1963, which was a program that was focused on rigorous inspection during design and maintenance phases, still exists today in a much more extensive and in-depth uh, manner. But uh, since the inception of that program, the only non-combat related loss of a submarine was the Scorpion, which was not subsafe certified for some reason that I could not uh, discern. Um, the point of these things and, and the point of me covering these things is just that I, I don't I don't even know what pointed me in this direction, but it was just the fact that I want to remember it. Um I want us to remember it. I want those those submariners to be remembered. And this is the day that we do that. <laughs> so this was the thing that I chose to remember today. Uh, the 129 souls lost in the Thresher and the 99 souls lost in the Scorpion. Uh, we remember them because they're us. Uh, following the loss of the Thresher, uh, and this is a very well-known article, I guess, uh, in the submarine community, but following the loss of the Thresher, Dr. Joyce Brothers wrote uh, an incredible description of the feelings we all have, but often fail to reflect on. And I'm going to read that now. The tragic loss of the submarine Thresher and the 129 men had a special kind of an impact on the nation, a special kind of sadness mixed with universal admiration for the men who choose this type of work. One could not mention the thresher without observing in the same breath how utterly final and alone the end is when a ship dies at the bottom of the sea. And what a remarkable specimen of a man or woman nowadays uh, it must be who accepts such a risk. Most of us might be moved to conclude, too, that a tragedy of this kind would have a damaging effect on the morale of the other men and women in the submarine service and tend to discourage future enlistment. Actually, there is no evidence that this is so. What is it, then, that lures these men and women to careers in which they spend so much of their time in cramped quarters, under great psychological stress, with danger lurking all about them, Togetherness is an overworked term, but in no other branch of our military service is it given such full meaning as in the silent service. In an undersea craft, each person is totally dependent upon the skill of every other person in the crew, not only for top performance, but for actual survival. Each knows that their very life depends on the others, and because this is so, there is a bond among them that both challenges and comforts them. All of this gives the submariner a special feeling of pride because they are needed 
as a member of an elite corps. The risks, then, are an inspiration rather than a deterrent. The challenge of masculinity is another factor which attracts men to serve on submarines. It certainly is a test of a man's prowess and power to know he can qualify for this highly selective service. However, it should be emphasized that this desire to prove masculinity is not pathological, as it might be in certain daredevil pursuits such as driving a motorcycle through a flaming hoop. There's nothing daredevilish about motivations of people who decide to dedicate their life to the submarine service. He does indeed take pride in demonstrating that he is quite a man, but he does not do so to practice a form of foolhardy brinksmanship to see how close he can get to failure and still snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. On the contrary, the aim in the submarine service is to battle danger, to minimize the risk, to take every measure to make certain that safety rather than danger is maintained at all times. Are the people of the submarine service braver than those in other pursuits where the possibility of a sudden tragedy is constant? The glib answer would be to say that they are. It is more accurate from a psychological point of view to say they are not necessarily braver, but that they are people who have a little more insight into themselves and their capabilities. They know themselves a little better than the next person. This has to be so with people who have a healthy reason to volunteer for a risk. They are generally a cut healthier emotionally than others of similar age and background because of their willingness to push themselves a little bit farther and not settle for an easier kind of existence. We all have tremendous capabilities but are rarely straining at the upper level of what we can do. These people are. This country can be proud and grateful that so many of its sound, young, eager people care enough about their own stature in life and the welfare of their country to pool their skills and match them collectively against the power of the sea. I, uh, I love that article. I did my best to... Uh, <laughs> Be inclusive with pronouns because uh, not because I'm trying to be anything other than that with the I mean there's amazing incredible just badass female submariners out there and uh, the article was written long before uh, women were allowed on submarines but it is what it is now and I just wanted to be as inclusive as I could I couldn't do much about that masculinity paragraph but um, the article itself the message of the article, um, I think is very relevant now, even though it was written back then. Uh, I think contextually on a day like today, when we're thinking about these things, um, the whole idea is pretty wild. And, and to know that there are still so many incredible humans out there volunteering to do this insane thing and and that they spend careers doing it um i mean it fills me with pride especially since i'm in this position in life where i feel like i'm at the end and i'm looking backwards at like what i what i've left behind whether or not that's like some kind of like mark or 
or whatever legacy, whatever you want to call it. Um, but also just that I I've come to the end of my road and, and there's so many still beginning theirs. And I got to spend some time with, with some of those submariners recently. And, uh, some of which were female enlisted. Um, and it's just cool to watch. It's cool to see submariners at the beginning of their careers still figuring it out still they're in that position that you were once in (laughs) so long ago um learning about the boat learning about how to fight the ship learning about it its history and heritage learning about the risk that is inherent in in being a submariner and watching them just forge forward regardless um because like I, you don't think about it. It's really strange. You just don't, uh, except for those those moments. There's like that brief, fleeting moment, right as you're about to go do the thing, and then it's gone, and then you barely even recognize that it happened. And then for the rest of the time, you're just doing it. You don't think about it, even when you're in situations that get a little interesting. And I've been in in several where um yeah submarines on fire you don't think you just go put the fire out you don't think about the fact that that could turn into the dolphin where they're on the surface abandoning ship where people are getting seriously injured like the you just don't think about it and maybe it's a misplaced just sense of invincibility or supreme confidence that we're ready to fight the ship and we're just going to fix the problem when it arises. And a lot of that was threaded throughout that, uh, that article by Dr. Brothers. And so I I really enjoy reading that. Um, just makes me feel good about what I do. (laughs) Um, and it should, it should make you feel pretty good about what you do. Uh, for the submariners out there and even for those that that aren't I mean it, you could apply a lot of those concepts to any of the things that somebody volunteers to do in the military and, and puts themselves at risk in one way or another at one time or another it's really impressive that despite the long list of what seem to be obvious reasons to discourage someone from doing that throughout history, there are still those people that volunteer anyway. And, uh, today I just wanted to take time to think about the ones that volunteering to take that risk met that risk in real life. Uh, and, didn't wilt I'm sure they fought the ship until the very end uh, and are still effectively doing so on eternal patrol and those are the those are the incredible humans I wanted to think about today Um, I hope everybody has an incredible Memorial Day and takes some time amongst the fun to think about things like this, uh, and just 
attach that meaning to the things that you're doing today. Um, if you need anything from us, as always, hit us up. Don't give up the ship podcast at gmail.com. You can Facebook message us. Don't give up the ship podcast, or you can DM us on Instagram or Reddit at Degas podcast. Um, if you ever need anything, don't hesitate to reach out and that's it. That's what I got to for you on this Memorial day. Thank you so much for listening and don't give up the ship. <laughs>